Hey, what's up everyone? This is Sam. Today is a very special day for me and the entire Twimmel team. After over 1,200 days of podcasting, interviews with guests from six of the seven continents, Antarctica, we see you, nearly six million downloads, and less than two weeks away from our very first conference, we are ecstatic to bring you the 300th episode of the show. Coinciding with this important milestone, I am excited to share that we'll be rolling out updates to the Twimmel brand over the next few weeks. When I launched this week in machine learning and AI, I never imagined that I'd be meeting new people who'd see my name or hear my voice and say, hey, you're the Twimmel guy. Not to say that Twimmel's a household name or anything like that, but we love this and are embracing it. With that in mind, the show will now be known as the Twimmel AI Podcast. If you head over to TwimmelAI.com, you can check out our new logo and the refresh show graphics that accompany this change. Obviously, we want to know what you think of our new look, so please reach out via email, Twitter, the show notes page, Carrier Pigeon, or whatever works best for you. And now, on to the 300th show. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Kalai Ramia. Kalai is a data scientist at PARC, the storied Xerox research organization. Kalai, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, It is great to have you on the show. You come at data science with a background in transportation, and that certainly influences some of the research that we'll be talking about today. Uh, But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story and how you came to be interested in the the intersection of these fields. Sure. Uh, So my undergrad and grad background, like master's background, was in transportation systems, uh, so I was working on a lot of, uh, uh, you know, spatial design of transportation networks and all those things. Um, I was getting bored a little bit of doing the same things again. So I went to grad school in a super interdisciplinary program, uh, which involves transportation, energy systems, econometrics, uh, environment. So I don't even know how to describe it in one sentence what I did. <laughs> But I had like four advices just to give a taste of how that was. Um, I'm starting, you know, I believe that the harder it is to describe what you do, the more interesting it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I'll try anyway. So I worked on something called integrated assessment models. Um, So these are the models they use it to inform, uh, for example, the IPCC reports for climate change. Uh, which is the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change. So if uh, they want to inform the public, like what's going to happen in a two degrees uh, Celsius policy, then these are all the things that we say in this report using this mathematical model. Um, And this is a humongous model where we solve each uh, sector in a Rubik's Cube format, um, looking at what are the cost-effective pathways for transportation to achieve the climate goals um, or for residential even, like uh, what would be the right amount of LED lights we need to have uh, to achieve this efficiency criteria and so on. So that was my PhD program. So I, I, like I mentioned, like I worked with all kinds of fields to build this humongous model. Um, uh, and I, my uh, specialty, my dissertation was focusing on like including human behavior in uh, light duty vehicles, like how people will be able to purchase different kinds of new technologies and how that will lead to climate goals. 
Um, so that was the essence of it. And while I was doing that in my grad school, um, I was getting familiar with machine learning and advanced data science techniques. And uh, I spent a little bit of that in my postdoc on a spatial data. Uh, then I joined Park. Uh, so that's when like, I started my uh, you know, interest in uh, deep learning systems and other things on a variety of projects. That sounds like a lot of fun. And the work that we're going to be digging into today is focused on an analysis of the infrastructure to support alternative fuel vehicles. Uh, can you talk more about your research in that area and how uh, that specific line of inquiry came to be? Yeah. So in that particular paper you're talking about, I uh, did the analysis on uh, hydrogen fueling stations. Um, so are you aware of uh, fuel cell vehicles? At the super high level? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'd love to hear your kind of take on where we are uh, with those. Okay, so I drive one. Uh, that is all you need to know right now. <laughs> <laughs> so they exist. They're out on the road. Yeah, that is the genesis of why I started this paper. Um, <laughs> so I got, uh, so it's otherwise commercially called a hydrogen car. Um, so since I wanted to like, you know, I have a long drive from East Bay to Palo Alto. So I kept driving on a gasoline vehicles. So I was feeling guilty. So I wanted to get a zero emissions vehicle, right? Everybody was going for electric. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, since I worked on these different kinds of transportation technologies, I wanted to see like how would it be to drive a hydrogen car. Um, so that was how my research started. You know, then I got on hydrogen car. So the way these vehicles, uh, go ahead, you, you had some questions. Uh, I will say that I did not associate fuel cell and hydrogen. I, I'm very ignorant in that area. I thought when I think of fuel cell, I associate that with alternative battery technology like that we might see in uh, phones or computers or even cars and hydrogen. I don't know how I envisioned us uh, getting the hydrogen into the cars, uh, but I did not associate that with fuel cell. And I did not realize that they were broadly available today. Yeah, see, you know something. <laughs> and you're exactly right. Uh, fuel cell are similar to batteries. So uh, the fuel cells work in a way battery does, like a, what it works in a Tesla or a Bolt, except that you uh, give hydrogen to fuel cells and then they convert that to electricity and that drives the car. So they are essentially electric cars, but then they need hydrogen to produce the electricity. That's the only difference. Okay. Um, so the way they work is, you know, uh, California is the pioneer in this technology. So they have about like 32 or 35 hydrogen stations all over the state. And uh, Bay Area and Southern California are big in this network. They have multiple stations. Um, that's one of the main criteria to buy or, you know, to lease a hydrogen vehicle. So I'll get to the uh, machine learning part in a bit. But I Meaning to from a problem. consumer perspective, if I don't yeah. find a fueling station, I'm probably not going to want to buy one of these. Exactly. Like, yeah. And I imagine it's it's not like an electric vehicle where I can just get a, a box and attach it to my house and, you know, be able to charge my car. Uh, the hydrogen infrastructure at the home is non-existent. <laughs> you don't want that. And dangerous. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly right. So that's why uh, having a public hydrogen station is very important and having a reliable public hydrogen station is very, very important. Um, fortunately, I live in Union City. Uh, so there is one in Fremont and there's one in Hayward. 
and I work in Palo Alto and there's one in Mountain View at the, at the time when I got the car. Um, so I was very excited. Uh, so the fueling system is very similar to gasoline. So I was doing that. And then over a period of time, I realized like some stations do really badly in these. Like you, you go there and then suddenly there's no fuel um, uh, or there's line or, you know, there's all sorts of problems. And then the other stations, uh, I started to uh, rely more and more. And I was looking for some kind of data for this. Like, is there a data-driven reliability that I can actually look up so that I, when I want to refuel, I can go there directly? And there wasn't one, so I started collecting the data. Uh, so the California Fuel Cell Partnership is the agency that provides this um, real-time hydrogen uh, availability data online. So I scraped that data for three months uh, from September, October to December of last year, uh, every hour. Uh, and I wanted to see the time series and do all those things to analyze where I can go refuel or where anyone can go refuel. Hmm. Um, so I did that and then I got, uh, you know, so when you get a zero emission vehicle, you get rebate from the state. Um, if you are buying a Tesla or a Bolt, you can get about $2,500. And if you're getting a hydrogen car, you get about $5,000. Uh, and that data is available to the public, anonymized, of course. Um, but you can see who got the rebate at a zip code level, uh, okay. at, at census tract level even. So, so you can get I a sense to, for mm -hmm. vehicle density by zip code or census tract. Exactly. So so putting two and two together. Um, so I have this uh, state, fuel consumption data that I collected for a period of three months. And all I have to match it with the demand and see whether there is a trend. Um, obviously, there was a trend. Uh, and you could actually see which stations lag behind and which stations are overstressed. Like, for example, if you draw a linear relationship between uh, demand and supply, uh, I, I was able to visualize, uh, in this case, Mountain View was not used by people. Um, so it confirmed my instincts that Mountain View sucks in like I mean the station <laughs> sucks <laughs> so I was happy about that but then I don't know by my own instinct alone so I did a survey of 100 fuel cell drivers um, so uh, we have this Facebook group of uh, hydrogen car drivers uh, that we uh, talk to each other and uh, you know talk about the uh, fueling difficulties or uh, whatever um, so I put out the question to them uh, I asked what are some brief uh, seven questions on like what's their favorite location, what's their least favorite location, what are the things uh, they find uh, difficult to uh, or why they avoid the station and so on. Um, it so happened that many of them picked Mountain View as the least favorite station uh, because uh, the one thing I felt, which was confirmed by others, it had a different setup than other stations. Um, so and it wasn't user friendly. Uh, that was something you know uh, we couldn't have guessed just by looking at the data. Uh, and also other things like you know some stations are overstressed because there are a lot of people queuing up. So which kind of gives an indication that um, the station capacity could be increased over time in those places. Mm -hmm. So I wrote this paper initially to suggest that to policymakers, you know, having this kind of continuous monitoring mechanism. Uh, we'd be able to help uh, your you know, data-driven decisions over time, whether you want to increase the station capacity or do you want to include a new station in that area because it's overstressed 
or if there's something wrong going on with it, if there's unsafe location or something different for your setup, it will be able to identify where it's going on and then you can fix it. Um, so that was an interesting paper. So once I did that, so it was published in the International Journal of Hydrogen Energy. Uh, and then there was another sister paper. That's, and that uh, paper specifically mm-hmm. is the one titled An Integrated Quantitative Qualitative Study to Monitor the Utilization and Assess the Perception of Hydrogen Fueling Stations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I wanted to capture everything in one. (laughs) Yeah. It was a very uh, fun paper to write because it was based out of my personal experience and it's full of affirmations like I was right. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. Now, in in hearing you kind of describe the the setup and what your data sources are, one thing that jumps out at me from your personal experience is that there are two sides to the demand equation. There's where the cars live, but there's also the other side of the commute, where you're going. Um, Were you able to find any data to incorporate that side of the demand equation into your analysis? Yes. Uh, So remember the survey I mentioned? So that was one of the questions to the drivers. Um, So where do they fuel and what was the reason why they choose that station? Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I wanted it to be close to home um, because that's where I rely most. Uh, so, or on the way to commute. Uh, it so happened that about uh, 70% of the people who answered that uh, why they picked the station was proximity to their house. Okay. Um, so that that was a re- uh, my assumption as well. And that kind of validated uh, this. And of course, this is just a preliminary way of analyzing things. And there's always, like you mentioned, um, you know, this this demand, traffic demand, time of day events and all those things that could factor into these things. Um, but for the initial, you know, checking the station performance overall in a broad period of time, I think this might be okay. Okay. So, yeah. So I, uh, if you go through the paper, I mean, there are these detailed steps on how I transform the time series into one single metric and all those details, if you like, um, I can go back to that. And that's in the the quantitative qualitative paper? Yes, yes. Uh, so the this initial paper was uh, kind of talking broadly about this problem and integrating the both the quantitative approaches and, and the qualitative survey that you did, but then you did another paper that really focused in on the quantitative side and in particular the application of machine learning to this problem or an application of machine learning to this problem. Right. Uh, So since I had access to the spatiotemporal data, uh, so it was rich in in terms of like whatever data I collected for three months. So it's a very ripe data set to explore different kinds of problems. Uh, in this case, I wanted to see if, if I can do some kind of temporal clustering um, to identify the signatures of the usage of these stations over time. Um, so, so I used a temporal clustering mechanism. Um, so I was able to find out, since I had access to the qualitative survey, I was able to even interpret the results that came out of this model. And so t- talk a little bit more about the temporal clustering approach that you used. What, what exactly was your objective and what specific techniques did you apply? 
So the objective was to identify if uh, just by looking at the station consumption, uh, will we be able to see whether can we group these stations into different categories, uh, which the paper describes how it's being done. So uh, I, I identified like five categories from uh, the signature of these temporal usage. Uh, so the method I followed is something called complexity invariant temporal clustering. Um, so I got this from a research paper. Uh, so the idea behind that is um, for uh, use cases in fin finance, or anything, any domain-related uh, uh, temporal use cases, you can actually find the signatures uh, and in terms of complexities. So you can do uh, clustering of these signatures based on that. And I was able to find five groups of those. Um, so one is the healthy range, uh, where we think the stations uh, perform pretty well. And then the other group is the overstressed, where there are being, uh, you know, a lot of people go there uh, more than the predicted demand. And another is where the problem stations, uh, where people do not go and they have a different standards of reporting and such. Uh, and the other are like connector stations and are some, you know, the connector stations are those that are placed somewhere in between the high demand and uh, low demand stations. Um, so this method, so I, I tried with different kinds of clustering methods and uh, this one, the complexity invariant method seemed to perform well. Uh, and uh, we were able to hierarchically group these uh, stations into different categories. Okay, so you applied this clustering technique uh, and you're specifically trying to cluster uh, in, in time series and then use the these clusters to identify the specific, essentially categorize the types of fueling stations. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, if you recall my previous paper, so that uh, identified the relationship between supply and demand. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this case, we are just using the supply side to identify uh, any problem stations. Uh, so, by problem stations, I mean, uh, since I have the survey data, I can tell they are problem stations. Um, so otherwise, they are grouped into these different categories, different buckets of stations. Like there will be like majority of stations falling into like healthy range bucket. And then there there's these groups of five or six stations that falling into overstressed or uh, underperforming. Um, so the interpretation comes from the qualitative uh, method that I did. Uh, but then uh, this involved performing the analysis even without involving the demand of people. Um, so even if uh, the number of stations scale up in the future, uh, we don't have to worry about who is buying where or who is refueling where. Uh, that will answer the, your previous question as well. So just by looking at the signature of these uh, station usage, we can see whether it's performing in a healthy way or something is wrong with it. And you, you just referenced the qualitative survey results, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm noting the paper, this particular paper that we're talking about is unsupervised temporal clustering to monitor the performance of alternative fueling infrastructure. Right. So you, you, but you, so you didn't use the, the qualitative results or of these stations as labels. No, You're, no, no. Okay. Yeah, no labeling done. So it, for, we are clustering the stations first, and then the qualitative part comes only in interpreting those clusters. You, you've essentially created a, a way to, for a regulatory or a government 
agency mm-hmm. or somebody that cares about this to just look at the time series performance of these stations and their utilization and mm-hmm. assess them. Yeah. Is that right? So, yeah, exactly. So uh, the idea behind this is like California plans on uh, installing 100 of these hydrogen stations in a before 2025, right? That's one of the uh, plans to uh, climate change goal plans. Um, so if that's going to happen, we have to make sure uh, people uh, rely on these stations. And that is a part of, uh, you know, building the reliability, because one of the biggest fears, like you mentioned earlier, like if I have to buy a hydrogen car, uh, it the proximity alone doesn't matter, but I need to have a reliable station. Like if I go there, I need to be able to refuel. That's one of the biggest fears behind adopting hydrogen vehicles. And that's the reason behind, you know, going after electric because you can charge at home. So I think for, uh, you know, reducing emissions, we need to follow both technologies for diversity and to uh, adhere to compliance and adhere to uh, uh, follow reliable solutions or, you know, throw out reliable solutions to public. We need to have these kind of mechanisms in place. Uh, and uh, this is one of the projects, like I didn't see anything happening in the policy realm. So once I wrote the paper, I sent it out to California Fuel Cell Partnership and they were really interested in seeing this further. That's awesome. That's awesome. It, it does strike me that once the station is built, it's a little bit too late. Can you envision applying uh, you know, either the techniques similar to the ones you've written about or uh, other machine learning techniques to do this more uh, predictively to, uh, for example, determine where the, the next uh, 50 to 70 stations should go? I think it can happen because the stations are pretty sparse right now. Um, so, for example, if if Fremont is having more traffic than usual, then it is it would be easy to identify where it's coming from, uh, and then you know the next station placement can be made nearby um, so that it alleviates that. Or the station capacity can be increased pretty quickly. Uh, that doesn't need a lot of infrastructure uh, cost. So it is just a matter of delivering it more frequently. Mm-hmm. So the yeah. So the, I think those are the uh, low cost solutions that can help in the meantime, uh, to help people adopt more uh, zero emission vehicles. And you mentioned earlier in the conversation, I believe as one of your assumptions, a linear relationship between uh, demand and consumption. Did mm-hmm. your did your paper validate that assumption or did you challenge that assumption with in your research? Uh, so I did validate that. Uh, I ran all the linear re- regression assumptions within there. Uh, but I also mentioned that within the paper, uh, since it's a sparse uh, placement of stations, maybe this simple relationship is okay for now. Uh, but as you add more, uh, the relationship might not be linear. Uh, so we have to be careful to extend this to future use cases. If you know, We can't just assume the same uh, factors will apply when we add more. So it is a scalable solution, but we need to be careful of what we are doing. Cool. So it sounds like this paper was in a lot of ways a passion project, uh, but also mm-hmm. ties into your research at Park. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the connection and more broadly the the types of research you're going after at the Research Center? Yeah. So actually, I have to say this is completely my passion project. It was not the work <laughs> related at Park. And you can see why, right? Because I was getting frustrated with the station usage and such. Um so uh, at Park, I have been working on different kinds of projects. So uh, 
so I am um, I'm within the machine learning group at Park, uh, and there are different kinds of labs. Uh, uh, you know, one for computer vision, natural language, uh, you know, sensor systems, and we have uh, you know the printed electronics. They are all part of hardware labs. Um, so my the, my favorite thing about that is I work horizontally across all these labs. Um, so I'm able to pick and work on what I like. Uh, so some of the uh, interesting projects that I've done so far, which are not related to transportation or energy, uh, is I developed uh, a, a graphic design art generation uh, using deep learning. Um, so we did that uh, for a client who wanted to generate uh, you know, these designs fast on a scalable basis. So we had to deploy these deep learning models in, uh, onto the cloud. What kind um, of designs are we talking about? Uh, so I uh, published a work, something called Intricate uh, Design, uh, Intricate Deep Transfer Design. So it is like a, similar to style transfer where we have uh, a painting and a content uh, where, you know, the outcome would be a picture that looks like a painting. Uh, in this case, I'm using a silhouette as a content uh, and any pattern uh, uh, on, in the place of uh, design style. And then the outcome would be uh, these uh, patterns divided into new kind of chunks um, so that the out, uh, the output looks abstract at the same time it fits the shape of the silhouette. Um, so if you look up, I think there will be one called uh, Deep Quilted Darth Vader, uh, which is one of my signature words. <laughs> so I gave a quilt design uh, and then a, a Darth Vader silhouette as a content. And then the output looks, uh, you know, as if the quilt is stitched at the edges of the Darth Vader as if it's quilted. And um, it is different from cutting and pasting it because, you know, if you cut it, the finish won't be nice. So we're using this kind of uh, style transfer for that. Um, there are other examples also, like there's one more thing I did that has a stained glass effect. Like if you use a geometric style, uh, it leads to a stained glass effect. Uh, so I tried with different kinds of patterns and that was one of my uh, pioneer projects at Park. Um, so, you know, you can see like I worked on different kinds of domains there. Uh, and I also worked well, now, on... If I remember, you're also a comic artist. So this is also tying into your passions. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, art is something. So uh, the way I say it, like two things stick me, it's math and art. So this mm. was very cool because I was able to combine two of these things. You mentioned a client came to you. Are there commercial applications that you can talk about of uh, this, this kind of work? Yeah. So it, the client is uh, a Xerox company. Uh, so uh, uh, so they wanted, they are like marketing uh, design company. So they wanted to see if they can produce personalized designs, mm, uh, okay. depending on the color or graphic types and such. Uh, so and then they really liked it because it was able to do that those things. So if you have a logo, you'll be able to generate something personalized to you. Uh, that is the idea behind this. Oh, awesome! Uh, Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you also worked with more projects in the computer vision group on in an augmented reality assistant. So I designed an object detection algorithm for them, um, and also with dialogue systems uh, in the with the chat group. Uh, and currently, I'm putting together my research agenda uh, 
to do the com- combined work of you know hardware and software expertise within Park. Um, so the idea is to create. So we at Hardware Labs we produce a lot of sensors, uh, printed electronics and such. So uh, I'm exploring to see how we can use those technologies uh, with machine learning, uh, and you know it can be applied in myriad use cases. But I'm looking at energy and climate areas. And do you have some kind of visibility into or specific ideas into how they apply to energy and climate that you can share with us? Uh, for now, we are just exploring things, but there could be any number of use cases, right? For example, uh, agriculture is a big one. Uh, so if you have, uh, so Park does a lot of low cost sensors. Um, so it can be combined with machine learning uh, to identify what are the some crops that can be grown in a specific region, uh, or, or even in a, uh, we, we have a project on carbon capture. So, you know, we can use all these carbon sensors, humidity sensors, and temperature sensors to identify uh, where are the right locations for those, uh, and how can we verify that carbon is being captured, and so on. Um, so, it is still very, very new, like it's in the ideation phase. So, I'm still putting together a lot of things. And of course, transportation is a big one among them as well. Um, so, uh, we are, we are trying to see, so there is freedom to do set our own research agenda at park within reason, uh, so that it has, you know, relevant business use cases too. So I'm trying to match those two together. Uh, sounds like a, a fun place to be. Yeah, it's great. A lot of smart people. Uh, uh yeah. And the pe- some people have been there since the 1970s since park was formed. So it's great to have all their wisdom. Yeah. So it's very nice to be there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Kalai, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us about what you're up to. Yeah, thank you so much, Sam. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. For more information on this guest or any of our guests, visit TwimmelAI.com. Be sure to register for TwimmelCon AI platforms today. You can do that at TwimmelCon.com. As always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.